You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Michael aptly put a few days ago, a night of two surgeons uh, in the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. And the two surgeons are in the book, to be clear. Uh, We're very happy you joined us tonight. So tonight, uh, Michael Downs and Paul Goldberg will both read, then we'll have a discussion, and then there will be time to buy books from the Ivy Bookshop, who is here tonight with each of their latest books. So we will start with Michael Downs, who is the author of Fiction and Nonfiction, the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Maryland State Arts Council, and the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance. A former newspaper reporter, Downs is an associate professor of English at Towson University. So we're starting the night in 1844, where Horace Wells encounters nitrous oxide, or laughing gas, as we all probably know it, and began administering the gas as the first true anesthetic. His discovery would change the world, reshaping medicine and humanity's relationship with pain, which was so different in the daily 19th century life. But the discovery thrust Wells into scandals that threatened his reputation, his family, and his sanity, hardships and triumphs that resonate in today's struggles with what hurts us and what we take to stop the hurt all parts of the human condition that Downs writes so carefully about, no matter the time period. Please welcome Michael Downs. Go ahead. Thank you, Tracy. And thanks uh, to this great, huge crowd for being here. This is fantastic seeing such a crowded room. It's wonderful. Um, uh, I'm, I'm Michael Downs, and uh, uh, yes, I have a novel um, about an obscure moment in American history, in world history, really. Uh, it's sort of surprising more people don't know about it uh, or the characters involved, um, but it is, it is the miracle of pain relief, of, of general anesthesia. Prior to Horace Wells' discovery, uh, there was no such thing as surgical anesthesia, and people people suffered mightily in all kinds of ways. Um, this is a novel, but it's strongly based in fact. I worked uh, very hard to not change any material historical fact from the record, um, but that still left me a lot to work with. Horace's life was mysterious. There are many gaps in it. He ultimately became an addict, uh, was a bit of a liar in that respect. Uh, so even some things that we know of, that we think we know about him might not have been so. Um, but I'm going to start not with uh, a terrible, painful tooth pull, or anything like that, but the first tooth pull, pull ever that didn't hurt. Uh, the, the miracle of, of the very first time that this happened. And it only requires a little setup. Horace and some friends and his wife and a other large crowd had come together the night before to attend an event, a nitrous oxide stage show basically, uh, where people would huff nitrous oxide on stage and then do goofy, strange, wonderful things. One of Horace's friends chased another man around the theater, leapt over a couch, caught his leg on an exposed spring from the furniture, and shredded his calf. And then ultimately, as he was coming out of his nitrous oxide buzz, sat down next to Horace. And Horace looked at his leg and said, my God. And 
his friend said, hmm, I didn't notice that. I didn't feel it. And so the proverbial light bulb, the next Morris morning, Horace, who happened at that time to have an aching molar, arranged for a friend to come to his office, a fellow dentist, and pull his tooth. His name is John Riggs. Uh, also in the room are Gardner Colton, who, um, or is Gardner Colton, who was the man who ran the nitrous oxide party the night before. And he's there providing the nitrous oxide. So we have Riggs, Horace, and Colton. Riggs cradled the Bible against his chest, closed his eyes, moved his lips in prayerful silence, whispered, Amen. Then he adjusted, then Wells adjusted the bladder in his lap as if wanting the gas itself to feel at ease. He placed his mouth over the faucet, turned the key, and inhaled. Count ten, said Colton. Wells did, then exhaled. He inhaled again, another ten count. Then Wells stopped holding his breath or turning the key. He breathed back into the bladder, inhaled from it, breathed again into it, his mouth tight over the faucet. Colton counted breaths and at six jumped from his chair. That's enough, he said. That's enough. We agreed to six. He seized the bladder, cranked the key to shut the faucet. With a hand to Wells's brow, Riggs lifted the heavy head away from the spigot and set it to rest against the padded pillow of the chair. Wells's skin had blanched like the scales of a fish belly, so his red hair seemed even more like flame. He blinked, his blue eyes shifted, lids half-closed, but the eyes still seeming to see. But see what? The pupils lazed about, sometimes settling on an object, then moving in the direction of another, from open drawer in the tool chest to a green glass bottle of chemical to a fleur-de-lis pattern in the wallpaper. Riggs placed a fingertip against Wells' neck. His pulse is tranquil, he said. He counted. The beats spread widely, but with regularity. Colton pushed his knuckles into his own brow with such force he left his skin mottled pink. Is he awake? Is he asleep? Though Wells's eyes remained open, he appeared unaware, helpless. His vulnerability troubled Riggs with a sense of responsibility he'd not experienced in all his days as a dentist. He glanced out a window and saw that snow still fell, layering the shingles of the tobacconist across the corner. Neither asleep nor awake, I think. Colton waved his hands in front of Wells's placid face. Open your mouth, he shouted. Wells opened his mouth. He's not deaf, said Riggs. Less reproach to Colton than a note to himself. He reached for the tooth key, crouched near Wells's face. Open wider, he said. Wells did. In the next moment, Riggs found the tooth, secured the key, he felt his own pulse jump. Shouldn't someone hold his arms, he said. Just pull, said Colton, now. Riggs tightened his fist on the handle, gasped as he yanked. Nothing else happened. Wells lay in his chair, his expression unchanged. Not even a flinch, said Riggs. The men stood a moment, watching for some other reaction. As if by reflex, Riggs wiped Wells' blood and saliva from his fingers onto his apron. Then he presented the bloody molar to Colton. Riggs's whole arm trembled, and the molar shook in the air like some strange moth in a light. Riggs whispered near Wells' ear, What do you feel? Wells' lips moved like an infant's in its sleep. It had begun, Horace would later remember, with a tingling. He had made a mental note. Tingling, tips of fingers, tips of toes. 
Then numbness overtook his limbs. He thought to tap his foot, to lift it at the ankle and tap his shoe sole against the floor. Strange this part, because he sensed no subsequent movement. Given that his mind was a scientific mind, he did not assume that an absence of a sense of movement proved failure to move. Perhaps his foot had tapped, but he hadn't felt the sensations of tapping. Perhaps absence of pain required absence of all feeling. Perhaps. Perhaps his son Charlie could learn to tap dance. He should ask Riggs. He thought to say, might Charlie make a good tap dancer? But again, he sensed no movement in his mouth. But he felt something. Or his head did. Whichever it was, he approved. His body became waves. Waves instead of legs, waves instead of arms, waves instead of lungs. The weightless pleasure of waves. He experienced something like a laugh, but it was the laugh of soul rather than body. So the two, soul and body, are separate after all. What a thing to discover. What else? He could hear a pulsing beat, a sound the color of gold, a beat that sounded as if it rang from inside the bell of the world, the church bell of creation, the heartbeat of God. He looked around, the room expanded, or rather Horace shrank, or rather the room expanded. Somewhere he heard a sharpening wheel, and he saw its sparks spray into the air. What ecstasy to be a spark in this universe, one of an infinity of sparks, all brilliant, all in flight. A spark streaked by his face, and it spoke to him in a voice like God's. Open your mouth, said the spark. And Horace imagined his mouth opening, and perhaps it did, or did not, but did it matter? Brilliant and humble and in flight. Rapture. And then he felt himself breathing. His lungs, no longer waves, had become lungs again. He blinked and saw blinding brightness. He felt the blink. He held his eyes shut a moment. The pulse that had been God's heartbeat seemed now to be a throbbing, as if it were a visitor knocking on his forehead with two knuckles. His mouth tasted of iron. His tongue felt leaden. Still, it moved at his bidding, sort of. So he explored his mouth and found a hole along his gum line where he remembered no hole. He opened his eyes, and in the brightness he saw Riggs in his apron. Riggs held a tooth key, and lodged in the key was a tooth. It looked to him white as could be, as if polished, as if it were the tooth of an angel. Did you feel it, Wells? Did you feel the tooth pull? He had not. He had not. And even as he felt tired, wanting to sleep, the awareness that the angel tooth Riggs held was his own, sparked through him like some celestial fire. He tasted blood and tongued the spot where his sore tooth had been, felt its emptiness, and even the pressure of his tongue in the hollow space felt as no more than a caress. He clapped his hands once, then let them fall, benumbed birds alighting in his lap. Thus does the map of the known world widen and its mysteries multiply. Giddy with discovery, a dentist staggers to and fro, laughing as he upends a tool tray, caught by a companion as he tumbles into a birdcage, spilling seed and litter. Oxygen, one fellow yells, open the window, but no one does. A more momentous thing has opened. And in this second floor office above a frozen dirt main street in a provincial capital, men gape at a new panorama, knowing they are first to see. Being men, they want to speak of what makes them whoop and cheer, but words have yet to be invented for the unknown that demands to be explored. Pray, keep this secret, mumbles the dentist, his mouth packed with cotton. As his fellows leave, to return to their commonplaces, a bill to pay, a floor to sweep, a bench seat on a train beside a boy crying over his stubbed toe, 
all that humdrum, which will buoy them as it never has before, its monotony lightened by their new hope for humanity. Hold your tongues, says the dentist. Not a word, not yet. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, now we move to a, a present-day tragicomedy in the Chateau. Paul Goldberg's, uh, and first a little background, uh, Paul Goldberg's debut novel, The Yid, was published in 2016 to widespread acclaim. As a reporter, Goldberg has written two books about the Soviet human rights movement and has co-authored the book, How We Do Harm, an, expo an expose of the US healthcare system. He is the editor and publisher of The Cancer Letter, a publication focused on the business and politics of cancer. So we can see a common thread in the work. Um, featuring a colorful cast of characters, including Donald Trump, in a crumbling high-rise in Hollywood, Florida, populated mostly by Russian Jewish immigrants, the Chateau injects the crime novel genre with surprising idiosyncrasy subverting it with dark comic force in a setting that becomes a microcosm of Trump's America. Metaphors, for example, of throwing sheet music like propaganda leaflets from a plane have the reader gasping throughout the ride of a novel looking at the absurdity of clinging to dishonesty. So please welcome Paul Goldberg. It's kind of fun to have two journalists write about two surgeons. <laughs> but it, it, for me, the, the chateau was, was um, uh, uh, kind of, I felt there was this kind of a pull of today, a pull of a draw of, of present day America. Because my, my first novel was set in Moscow in 1953. Uh, I kind of started thinking of myself as as a as a writer of historical fiction, but in this case, it's really more like journalism. Uh, it's not memoir, but it's a whole lot like journalism. Um, although who knows what is what? Writing is funny that way. Uh, the um, uh, I guess I'll just kind of walk you through this entire enterprise of the chateau. So in the, in the last presidential election, I was shocked to see how seamlessly America's extreme right converged with the remnants of Russian extreme left. Uh, I was also amazed to realize that Donald Trump uh, had more than just support of the expatriate Russian community here. He was and is still loved. Now, uh, this book is set in Florida, uh, and I'm not a Florida person. I'm not a beach person. I, I don't know how to play golf. Uh, but just after I was finished with the Yid, uh, my father waged a campaign to become a member of his condo board in Hollywood, Florida. So listening to him, I started realizing just how deeply contested these, these, these elections can be. Um, it's about money. So here is a sh the chateau in a nutshell. Bill Katzenellenboygen, so named because it's just the longest Jewish name I know, <laughs> uh, who is a Nebuchadnezzar reporter and a science writer, is fired from his job at the Washington Post, where I have never worked. So meanwhile, in Florida, his college roommate, who is a prominent uh, plastic surgeon known as the butt god of Miami Beach, <laughs> dies in a suspicious, uh, well, under suspicious and salacious circumstances. So a former girlfriend convinces Bill to write a book about this death. Since he has very few other career options, uh, he concedes, and he is, of course, flat broke, as a reporter should be, um, even at the Washington Post. So, alas, he will need to stay somewhere, and the only place he can stay is, is his father's place. Um, and uh, we'll note his, he and his father haven't spoken in, in, in about 12 years. 
So that this is how Bill's ends up at this place called Chateau Sedan Neuve, which is a decaying high rise in Hollywood, Florida. At the chateau, uh, factions of very tough, very old people, uh, seasoned fighters, all of them, square off in a brutal fight over control of the building and its finances. The stakes are in the millions, millions spent on regular upkeep, as well as many more millions that would be spent on capital projects. Special assessments at the chateau can be astronomical, and a wave of defaults is imminent. Kickbacks, however, are generous, and, and they are blatant. It is Florida, after all. And the principal construction contractor is referred to as the sponsor. If you're on the board of directors and if you behave, the sponsor will give you a three-year lease on a white Lexus. And Russian people like their Lexus white. Um, so in this setting, I play out many conflicts as, at once, as many as I possibly can. And, and to me, a novel must have a big character at its center. And actually, the same is really true of nonfiction. The biggest character in the Chateau, bigger even than Donald Trump, is, uh, uh, by, by the way, that's pronounced Donald Trump at the Chateau because we, the Russian people, cannot say Donald without a soft sign and we cannot do Trump at all. It just has to become Trump. Um, so the big character there is Melser Yakovlevich Katsinellenboygen. Melser fills the room. Melser is a former refusenik. Melser is a poet. Melser is a Medicaid fraudster. Melser is a demagogue. Melser is a predator. Melser is a passionate Trump supporter. Melser wants to gain control of the board. Melser wants your money. So his name, by the way, means Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and the October Revolution. There is enough there for four statues, uh, maybe five, and Melser wants all five because Melser is big. Now, I should tell you a few things about Florida. Now, this is how Bill sees Florida, and of course, he could be wrong. So, even if you would rather be any place but South Florida, you may not be immune to the feeling of infinite possibility manifest in the first exposure to sunlight that pierces the cab's windshield the instant you emerge from the shadow of structured parking at Fort Lauderdale or Hollywood International Airport. Even if you would rather be any place other than, how can you not take note that this flash so completely captures the absence of cultural constipation? Has any place, any culture so fully embraced the pursuit of pleasure with small d democratic, small c catholicism? If you're an asshole, be an asshole. If you want a machine gun, get a machine gun. If you want to snort coke, snort coke. If you want to defraud your neighbor, defraud your neighbor. If you want to bleep a giraffe, arrangements can be made to enable you to bleep a giraffe. If you want to vote for him whose name is too painful to utter as coronation nears, vote for him whose name is too painful to utter as coronation nears. If you want to be a machine gun-toting, coke-snorting, giraffe-bleeping, uh, neighbor-defrauding, Trump-supporting, fascist asshole, be a machine gun-toting, coke-snorting, giraffe-bleeping, neighbor-defrauding, Trump-supporting, fascist asshole. Yeah, if you like great original Russian poetry, do not, do not read the Chateau. Um, the protagonist's father, Melser, writes occasional poetry for the inauguration of beloved, his beloved Donald Trump. Now, occasional poetry just always stinks, just because it always does, it just has to. Um, the form in, is that he writes in, in this case, is Chistushki, and it's Russian and it's limerick-like. So I'm going to kind of half sing it here in Russian and in English, and if anybody wants to throw stuff at me, go right ahead, I'll understand. So I first start with Russian. Вашингтонском да в болоте крокодилы плавают, а народом говорит, будем с Путиным дружить, и болото здесь сушить. The Potomac Swamp of late 
big green crocodiles populate our Putin and our Trump will soon drain that stinking swamp. So the uh, characters in the chateau speak a kind of Russian English, a kind of a Runglish or Englishian, and the words go back and forth from one language to another. So consider this one word, Zhuika. It's any Jewish social service organization. Uh, let's say, for example, that dementia takes the better of a Russian person. Uh, what happens? Druika sends when from mental health. Um, so articles, be they definite or indefinite, are rarely used. One of my characters alleges violation of a Florida law, and she shouts, you violate Florida statue. I've actually heard somebody scream that, which was I, I, I thought was pretty funny, but nobody else did in that room. Um, I can't tell you how, actually, that violation of Florida statue would work and the whole geometry of it, and it could be a lot more challenging than relations with a giraffe. The Russian word that comes up a lot in Florida and in this book is svolich. Uh, um, it comes up so often that I absorbed it into the book, and I explain it once, and then I just use it. Uh, Svolich is actually a fascinating word. Uh, loosely translated, it means low life. It comes from a word volok, a Russian word volok, which is felt. So a loss of integrity of individual strands of hair is, is the making of felt. So it's a kind of a loss of moral fiber. I've known this word all my life, and I speak Russian pretty often, but I rarely hear that word as often as I hear it in Florida, among my people. Maybe it's just something about Florida, maybe it's just something about condo boards. Uh, Bill, uh, in Florida, at one point decides to go running on the boardwalk, uh, uh, he, he had many, many months of rest and drinking entirely too much or many days, rather, excuse me. So he starts pondering what he sees. So Bill passes the security gate at 6.17 a.m. He is not the first inhabitant of the chateau to step out into darkness. Three others, sad-faced men, circa 75 plus minus 10, stand outside the building, waiting patiently as their little white dogs contemplate emptying their tiny bladders and bowels. There is a joke about such men. Why do Jewish men die before their wives? Because they want to. It's possible that these men are goyim, but the joke still stands. Goyim my people. This is about dogs. These dogs aren't dogs. All three, no wait, there are four. All four are well under the weight limit of 15 pounds specified in the condo do's and don'ts. These dogs don't apprehend tiny bad guys. They don't sniff out little explosives or baby cadavers, but they do have a mission. They substitute for the grandchildren who don't come to visit. They aren't especially good at breathing, which is why they sometimes ride in baby strollers. They spend their days listening to complaints about mommy, about daddy, about the sadly deteriorating physical and allegedly mental health of both, about doctors who overcharge while failing to acknowledge the obvious signs of many strokes and myelodysplastic syndrome, about Obamacare, about unappreciative rude family members, and of course about crooked condo boards. Smology. The dogs listen and they wheeze. If they could kill themselves, they would. When you're smaller than a cat and lack opposable thumbs, it's hard to pull the trigger. Someday little guns will be made for this niche market. Why do these dogs get Prozac? Because they need it. Bill runs past the silent scooper-wielding sentries of the chateau gates and heads north on Ocean Drive. So. A wise man I know uh, coined this incredible term, balkanization, spelled B-A-L-C-O-N-I-Z-A-T-I-O-N, uh, which stands for knocking down balconies and replacing them regardless of whether it's necessary to do so. 
At the chateau, the balconies are quite sturdy, but the sponsor wants them replaced and the board wants a kickback. You see similar projects undertaken and similar arguments flare up all around Florida. Now, Bill's reflections uh, triggered by balconization. Let's save you devoted your, in your life to screwing other people. You break no more laws than you have to. You avoid being disgorged. You build up a goodly stash. You move to Florida. You get bleeped by your condo BOD. Your stash, your stash gets drawn down. You try a new fraud, but it fails. The, word, the world is changing. You are losing your touch. You move to a lesser place, or you start whacking people across their backs with your crooked cane until Druica carts you away. You might die in the middle of it. You might want to. You will make room for a fresh, idealistic 67, for fresh, idealistic 67-year-olds to take their turn at the good life by the sea. So that's sort of the chateau. Uh, thank you. Right, it'll pick up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Eh, we don't need that mic either. Um, so I'll start. Okay. Question. Um, so Paul, before um, the program, we were talking about Florida and how it makes you feel. And Michael, I've seen Hartford, Connecticut, pop up in your work a lot. So I wanted to know um, from both of you how you see place in your writing and like what it means to you, like if it drives the plot or if you see it as a character, just how, how you see place. Uh, I do see place as a character um, and I do write about Hartford a lot and when people ask me about Hartford, I tend to say it's like Baltimore only smaller and without a sense of humor. Um, yeah. And, and I wish Hartford had a sense of humor, but it doesn't really, and so I'm going to have to figure out a way to add that at some point. But I, but I, I find that place is, um, for me, a character. For me, it is the sum of community. Like, people make place, and so um, the place itself seems to, to, to hold all the energy and the hopes and the dreams and the mistakes uh, and the errors that the people who, who, who live there visit upon it. Um, a, 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 a professor of mine once, once talked to me about um, setting and I was sort of writing a lot about Hartford and he said, well, we write from where we get the wound, which seems a little dramatic but um, it seemed to make sense to me that, uh, you know, I was born in Hartford. It was a community. I moved away when I was young. I missed it for years and didn't understand it, and yet it was my hometown. And so I think that's why I kept going back there in literature, was to um, uh, revisit that community, revisit that place, and understand how it works and how it doesn't work and what have you. Because I'm, I'm thinking not really about Miami, because Miami really, or South Florida really doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a place that everything come to me comes back to Moscow, which is the place where I was born, and I was 13 when I came here. So uh, it was, um, when I think of Moscow, I kind of, there the, well, there's the the cobblestone, dark, icy uh, place that also has a certain spirit in the soul. And I think of Bulgakov an awful lot. And I, for me, the biggest fight as a, as a writer is to get away from Bulgakov uh, when I write about Moscow. 
um, because it just you, lots of people have tried to write like Bulgakov. Um, this book really is more Russian uh, than American, even though it's set in South Florida. And in this case, I, uh, um, I, I really modeled it on on uh, Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, which is a book about really two doctors. And, uh, one of them is an old uh, military doc, and the other is a uh, is a young nihilist. Um, so in a way, I, I kind of channeled that. So I'm, I'm kind of more, this is a place where I w- would have been really, I was hurt many ways and physically as well in Moscow. Um, and that's really where I come back to. And Florida is more like a screen against which Moscow is projected. Mm-hmm. It's a macabre screen and the projection is even more macabre. So that's what I was kind of, ended up doing. I don't know if it's what I was striving to do. I think it was. Dr. Schmunda. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, two questions, one for both of you and then the other for, for Paul. Um, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing what the seeds of your novels happen to be. Um, they're not typical stories that you find, say, you know, in um, mass um, uh, mass population novels or in contemporary novels. Um, so I, I, I'm sort of curious, at what point, for example, did the idea of Horace Wells as uh, the basis for a novel come, and at what point uh, Paul, did you begin to think about uh, writing your novel? And so that's a, for both of you, I'd be curious. But second, and this is specifically for you, Paul, and, and it does return to the earlier theme. Um, so when, I, when you were telling us the story of Florida, setting it in Florida and all of that, it just so happens that uh, recently, on a flight, I started reading uh, Tom Wolfe's story. I've forgotten the title because it really was a flight reading, but it's a very hilarious story. Um, the protagonists are essentially uh, minority groups in Florida, uh, more particularly the uh, Cuban-American uh, community there, and uh, to a lesser extent, uh, some West Indian places there. And it's a very hilarious, uh, mm-hmm. very hilarious piece of reading. Can't stop laughing. And in many ways, and since I read um, an early incarnation of uh, the year, I never got around to reading the original, which I shall. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the humor there, it's, you know, it's just, just part of it. And, and so it does return to this notion, why Florida and the other other Floridians who have written novels, and Florida always comes out as this huge, you know, comedic place to uh, to set a novel in. Hyaston, for example, comes to mind. So why Florida? Why not say Brighton Beach, for example, or um, some place in, in in LA? And you know, so why this true that Moscow might be, um, you know, the place you're most familiar with? Your choice of Florida, actually, I think is consistent with a whole bunch of other fiction, you know, comedic fiction that, uh, you know, huge comedic fiction that you read about in, in American mm-hmm. literature. Mm-hmm. Right, yes. well, I, 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 why don't you go with that one and then we'll Yeah, after. yeah, uh, I'll start and then we can just kind of bounce around from that one. Uh, First of all, we don't really get to choose our material. Our material chooses us. It's just, it's just, that's just how it goes. Uh, second, with, uh, with Florida, I, um, material was finding me. I mean, I have absolutely no connection to Brighton Beach. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I, I don't really understand that. I've been there a few times. Um, in various points of this. Brighton Beach is this Russian Jewish community in Brooklyn uh, where there were, you know, Soviet Jews started settling and then fought 
with their neighbors and built a kind of a criminal, mostly uh, community that, that speaks a kind of Odessa Russian, which by the way in itself is also really fascinating and uh, to listen to. So when you go to Brighton Beach and you speak Russian, you, you basically have to take out your notebook and write down some of the most horrifying stuff that makes you think of Isaac Babin, whom I absolutely love. Um, so uh, Florida was just sort of where my father was at the time, and I happened to look at his condo board and the condo board election that was taking place, and I said, oh my God, this is, you know, I'm, I'm a police beat reporter. Formerly, I've been many kinds of reporter. Mostly, I've been a science writer. But, but I, 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 once a police beat reporter, always a police beat reporter. You go around, you sniff out dirt, you kind of figure out who's got which angle, and so just this idea of criminality, and the idea of the kind of the local lore, and also this idea of what the heck happened to all of us, this, these Soviet Jews? Why, why have, have we become the way we have? Because, I mean, when I listen to some of the stuff, it's not benign, uh, some of the word conversations around the various tables. I mean, some of the stuff I've heard, if it were said in my house, I would have thrown people out. It wasn't in my house, so I couldn't throw anybody out. Uh, so, and you know, some of it was really anti-refugee, and, and if you like, if you look at my papers, my ref, my papers, immigration papers would say refugee. So why is it that 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 these former refugees would become so xenophobic and racist? So that is a part of the chateau, and that was a kind of an introspection. So it's kind of like that's the material that was thrown at. Does that answer? Well, at least for the second part, how about, at what point did you start picking up uh, the novel? At what point? Uh, I finished the year, and then I said, now what am I going to do? And then I'm having drinks with my editor and my, my agent, and I say, you know, I have two other ideas, and they said, why don't you do this one first? Uh, and this is before Trump was elected, so the book became more Trumpy as Trump moved up through the primaries. Uh, and then I was sort of finding myself thinking, wait, this book will get much better if he gets elected. Because, uh, so my, 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 my uh, interests as a citizen were running completely counter to my interests as a novelist. Uh, so I almost, I would never have voted for him, but I certainly was not, uh, you know, um, it's sort of like having bet five dollars on on Donald Trump, and that way, you know, if you got elected, you still get five dollars. <laughs> so that that's kind of like where I was going with this book. It was uh, something that was sandwiched in between my uh, other projects, which are one of them is going to be based in Moscow in 1976, and the other is going to be based set in uh, in the United States in uh, in the 1940s. 43. So, so I didn't. Um, I, I agree that the material does does not. You, you don't choose your material. Um, because if I did, there's no freaking way I would have done this. It's it. I didn't. I didn't necessarily want to go back into the 1840s. I knew very little about the 1840s. All I knew about dentistry was what I had learned from having my own cavities filled. So, so really, there was there was nothing in this that um, uh, would have been easy and would have appealed to me. I mean, I even, I, I mean, I had to learn about the language of the. T I had to learn so much. I had to learn so much. Um, but the the book began when I was working on another book that I still haven't finished and I was doing some research for that other book and I was reading about a cemetery in Hartford that is near my grand the, the house where my grandparents lived and it is where my grandparents are now buried uh, along with Catherine Hepburn and J.P. Morgan and all kinds of uh, 
wealthy, famous Connecticut people. My grandparents were not wealthy or famous, um, but they're buried there. And while I was doing the research, I came across Horace Wells's uh, tombstone there, um, where he's buried there with his wife and their son, their one son. And it is a trippy gravestone. Uh, it, it shows it shows a person floating through uh, opium poppies, and there there are all kinds of fumes uh, in relief on the the tomb. And on one side is a woman's face, and she's asleep, surrounded by poppies. Um, and and it says, "I sleep to awaken." And on the other side. She's awake, and she's surrounded by morning glories. And it says, I awaken to glory. Uh, and that is kind of the story that I knew as a boy growing up in, in, in the Hartford area. That, that was the Horace Wells I had heard of, the, the famous dentist who, who, who saved us all from pain. But as I began to read his story and came across the details of his sad, melancholy death involving prostitutes and sulfuric acid and the tombs prison in New York City, I thought, ah, this is not what they taught me when I was in second grade. They didn't tell me this part. And the more I looked into it and found that this man who had basically started pain relief as a thing in America, in the world, had himself become addicted and then a suicide from essentially the drugs, the substances that he'd created. The, the irony of our contemporary situation was pretty obvious and arch. And so I thought that maybe I could write this book and in, in writing it, um, I would have fun writing hallucinatory scenes and, and whatnot. Um, and I might have fun digging into the history. But I would also be able to meditate on pain and the nature of pain and the complications involved with it and um, the way we relieve it and how we are sometimes so desperate to relieve pain, we create pain. Uh, and, and I thought that was worth thinking about for 10 years. Ten years to write. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah, I know. So you had to learn a new language. I, I did. I did. In fact, I um, Victorian English. I, I I I wanted to write in such a way that a contemporary audience would read it because Victorian English is really tough. So what I did was I used the Oxford English Dictionary, and any time I wanted to use a word that struck me as just even a wee bit modern. I would go into the OED and see where that word came into use in the language. And if it came into use after 1850 or so, I wouldn't use it. And so that, that kept my, my language Victorian without being Victorian. Huh. Yeah. What? But, wait, it was both journalists. So here's what happens when you have two journalists sitting together. Yeah. <laughs> because, because yeah. yeah, it took me like 10 years to do this, and, and I'm just astonished at how you were able to work contemporary life so quickly into your novel uh, and, and you know, how, how were you inspired to say, okay, the Chateau has just become uh, something about the Trump era as well? And I mean, it was mostly written, uh, largely written, so basically I, I do write really fast. Uh, I don't sit down to write unless I, I know what I'm writing about. It's not. It wasn't a painstaking process for me at all. It's the going around thinking about is the painstaking process. Um, so, and in this case, I, I had good material, so I can write, you know, bang out stuff. I mean, it's just basic. And this book is, it's like journalism, except it's more like Janet Cook type of journalism, where <laughs> you make shit up. <laughs> it's, it's it's cheating. So, <laughs> so it's, it's actually felt really kind of cool in that way. So it's just a question of getting as far away from people being recognizable if they were even real. And most of the characters aren't real, really, in the mom. But, uh, yeah. so, but, but thinking about uh, uh, what, what is the role, this is a, one journalist asking another, uh, 
what does a um, uh, historical novel do that history doesn't? That's a really good question. Um, I think, I mean, what, what I saw in researching Horace and what I've seen elsewhere with history is that history doesn't explain um, always how people thought, how they reacted, um, what their interior lives were like. And it especially doesn't explain contradictions in the lives of, of, of people. So, so Horace, for example, is called, in everything you read about him, all the testimonies of friends, etc., a good Christian man. <laughs> and yet, prostitutes in sulfuric acid. How do, you, how, how do those two things come together? How do they make sense? Um, Horace loved his wife. He left to go to Paris uh, for a variety of reasons, and he was gone for a couple few months. He, she wrote to him. He never wrote to her. So, so, so those things create for me the, the questions and the contradictions about, well, what were these lives really yeah. like? And, you know, we can't trust letters. I mean, we know now even, like, would, would, would you consider your texts and Facebook posts to be representative of what your life really is? No. It's curated. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion. Mm -hmm. And when people wrote letters then, too, we can't just look at their letters and say, well, this is who they were, because they were probably also telling little fibs and making themselves look better and all those kinds of things. And, and so I think fiction can try and slide behind all that, look for the contradictions, and then tell us that people back then were actually a lot more like we are now than probably we suspect. Do you kind of have, uh, do you ever try to kind of challenge yourself to slow the movement down to that point where you know what it felt like to go out into the street and fall down on horse dung or whatever? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, and I wonder, for, for you, like, so, I mean, I, for my research, a couple things I did, I went to New York City to see the place where he threw sulfuric acid at prostitutes. Right. To see the building that he'd been living in. I, I went to his, um, I went to a museum and I found his death mask, and I touched his face. So, so now, I, I'm wondering, sort of, for you, with Moscow, and your historical figure, yeah. Uh, what, what, how did you bring yourself back to that time? Well, Moscow of 1953, which is where that book was, and I had the idea for this book when I was probably still in Moscow. I was, uh, I was still a kid in Moscow. I grew up around all of the Yiddish theater stories, and I actually met the man who wrote uh, the play, technically met the man who wrote the play, uh, Kenneg Lear, uh, uh, in, in Yiddish, so I met the author of King Lear. Uh, he was he lived across the street uh, in in a, this area called Malachovka, where some of the book a lot of the book takes place, uh, which was a very Jewish area. Uh, and this man had just come back. His name was Shmuel Halkin. He came back from the camps and was dying uh, across the street. I was just born, and my father brought me over, so. Technically, we've met. Um, I have no memory of it whatsoever. But when I was writing, sitting there and writing, uh, I was uh, thinking, you know, I was, I did need to use a lot of his book, like uh, another book on, on not King Lear. There was no reason to translate it back into anything. Uh, and I was reading his book, and I was thinking, yeah, it was an autographed book by the author of King Lear. Um, so the connection is very physical in that case. In Moscow of 1953, I wasn't there, but I was there in Moscow in Moscow of 1959, and on and on and on. It just was a little bit more, you know, beat up because the buildings got older, uh, and the the feeling I, of Moscow there is the hardest thing for me was to figure out 
the feeling of being an outsider because I'm not Russian, I'm Jewish. Uh, and it's very ethnic uh, in that way. Um, it's not a religion, it's an ethnicity. And it's, uh, you know, you get beat up a lot because you look different. So that feeling of it is, uh, is you know, what the characters feel like. So I had my characters, uh, the Jewish characters, but there's also an African-American character in Moscow who's an enlightened worker. Uh, and it's like, what's it like to be black in Moscow where, you know, they thought they negated race. Bullshit. They didn't negate race. Um, and what do you do when, when your ethnicity or your race is negated? That's really... So just when you start playing with identity, it's, uh, it's a lot of games to play. And then my next book set in Moscow in 1976, which is uh, four years after I left, but I know a ton about it, of course, because I've been there in 70, well, I've been there after, but I've certainly been there very close to them, lived there close to them. And then uh, I, in my nonfiction, I did a lot of interviews with people so, uh, well, who were there, a part of the dissident movement. So I have hundreds of hours of audio tape, which I haven't really tapped into, but I feel like I kind of must before I give it away to an archive somewhere. But it's like hundreds of hours of audio tape of my interviews with people trying to get them to, to create those kind of the slow it down thing. But I'm not actually, I'm about the quarter of the way through the book, I haven't really used that because I'm realizing that I have to kind of do a, a boiling it down, kind of a more of a Brechtian almost, boiling it down. So, I don't know if I've answered that. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, how about relevance today? Uh, opiates. Oh, yeah. Well, um, it, it's, it's the thing... That, that I, I came to understand is that it's it's not even just opiates because this has been an ongoing thing. There was yeah. there was there were, there was laudanum and there was Valium. And once upon a time, heroin was a uh, prescribed medicine. Yeah. Right. So so we've we've just kept coming up with all these ways. Oxycontin is only the newest iteration, or fentanyl, frankly, is the newest iteration of how we keep trying to find some new substance that will uh, take care of everything. When, when Horace was uh, using nitrous oxide, newspapers were calling it uh, a, you know, a miracle and a new hope for mankind. Um, well, when Oxycontin came out, um, the, the, the press release from, from Purdue was uh, new hope for millions. Right? And, and so there's always this sense that we're trying to find the magic bullet the one thing that will take care of all of our pain, and really, pain is just far too complicated for that. It is, it's, it's, it has to do with your brain, with your psychological systems, with your, with your nervous systems. Your emotions play into it, um, and, and one of the the best things I found in doing my research is I read a great book translated by Julian Barnes uh, by Alphonse Daudet, a French writer journalist who, um, like most French writers in the 19th century, had syphilis. And um, he ended up dying extremely painfully from syphilis and kept a journal of his pain and studied what he went through, uh, the emotional reactions, the physical reactions, what brought him relief, what didn't bring him relief. Uh, he was at a, a, a sanitarium, so he had other people around him in pain. And it's an amazing, it's a slight book, um, and Barnes did a wonderful job translating it, uh, but it's 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 fascinating to read, and you read that in France in the 1860s, 70s, mm -hmm. and you know that we are not all that different mm -hmm. now. We're, we're just doing it all over again. Just a different relationship with pain. Yeah. And also, I guess Baltimore is a is a great city of medicine, and there's an awful lot of pain. Uh, but did, did you find that helpful and useful to look at it more common, the kind of a today filter? Mm. Um, no, the most help, no, not Baltimore, though there is plenty of pain here. 
Um, uh, the, 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 most, the most helpful thing for the novel, and it's a terrible thing to say in a way, was that my mother, um, who died two years ago today, uh, suffered from chronic pain for about 10 years before she died. And so watching how that affected her and how it affected our family and the uh, people around her enabled me to, to see um, some of those insidious ways uh, pain makes itself known. You know, there's, there's a line in the novel that says pain is a slippery thing. And I, I, I mean, you, you, you cover cancer, right? Yeah. I mean, palliative care with cancer victims, people who have cancer, is, is a huge yeah. question mark. Uh, how, huge. How, you know, how does that, how does it work, how do you see it working? In, it, it's, actually, I, I, I kind of stay away from it because it's so slippery. Because pain is just so, it's, uh, there's a lot of just sort of the suggestive stuff and you kind of hope that people who know how to handle it handle it I don't what I cover is cancer research so I understand uh, how it's how the research is done how the policy is done so I don't really go there my mother died of cancer so that kind of stunk and so I was kind of aware of that but I was aware of that as a patient's son not as uh, and, you know, so I usually actually barely cover it mm -hmm. because I don't know how. It's it's just uh, too multivaried, um, and there's just you know there are lots of debates on it, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's uh, at what point do you do you switch somebody? This is the part that interests me more is at what point do you switch from curative intent or to, to a palliative intent? Um, and how do you integrate that into policy? And how do you get to the point where you just say, shit, we can't do anything, uh, sorry. Mm -hmm. that, that part is really interesting. And how does that differ from, say, death panels discussions that have been held in the United States? But every, all of the professional societies are really saying, what, what do you both dogs are really saying at what point do you say enough and and it's being it's kind of being phased in mm -hmm. as an idea it's difficult because pain is so idiosyncratic yeah that 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 nothing is that works for one person is necessarily going to work for someone else and 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 someone who says to you i'm in pain might be just wanting more oxycontin yeah but they might also really be in pain um and and it's so difficult to to figure that out to flip that switch. Yeah, but I mean, once you pump somebody up with a lot of morphine, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not that idiosyncratic. No, no. <laughs> you're, once you get to one point, you're, you're done. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, have, I have one more question, if we have time for one more question, which is, uh, so how do you switch? How do you flip the switch from, you know, hardcore policy details, former police beat reporter, just the, I'm looking at the facts and, and, and whatnot. Um, how do you flip the switch from that to the, the imaginative world? Uh, and, and well, yeah. Go from First, if I could ask you what the. Yeah. First, let me ask you what kind of uh, journalism did you practice? Um, well, I, I did police reporting for a little while. Oh, that's Weekend forever. Copy. You don't change. Weekend copy. <laughs> um, but but I, I was mostly a sports reporter and then some government and they both actually kind of seemed like the same thing to me in a lot of ways. Yeah. Sports but, and government. But nothing is everything is police beat though. Yeah. There's only two kinds of reporters: those who've done the police beat and those who haven't. And that's just it, you know. And the rest is commentary. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the. So how do you flip that switch? I I, I don't know if I actually do. Um, it's just, it's just story is a story is a story. You sort of storytell. Do you do that different? I, 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 I think I had to. I think I had to. I yeah. think I had to get to a deeper understanding of people yeah. than, than the one that I was afforded doing daily journalism. Yeah. That it was just, it was too quick in and out of people's lives um, to spend, you know, seven years with the lives of one family or ten years. That yeah. that's a whole different level of of of, of digging. 
But you slow it down to the point where you make it understandable to an asshole city editor, you know? <laughs> I mean, and if you can deal with an asshole city editor, you can deal with anything, you know? It's like, yeah, you've, you've screwed that one up, you know? I don't know that word. They teach me that in seventh grade. Yeah. So it's kind of the slowing it down again. It always comes down to the slowing it the heck down so you can tell the story, and the uh, story is a story is a story. Uh, it's my first novel. I have a book of short stories uh, also that um, is fiction. Okay. Are you going back into nonfiction or staying in fiction? I go back and forth. I do. Too. I go back and forth. And, it, it, and I can't explain always why one project, why one story strikes me as fiction and why one. I mean, why did I not just write a biography of Horace Wells? I don't know. I think I found his mysteries more um, interesting than the facts of his life. Uh, so then when do I write nonfiction? Well, when the reality of something um, is, is strange and interesting enough to me on its face, um, that, that, yeah, but I, I don't know. It just sort of, I feel it through. I've always done nonfiction, and in fact, when I was, I used to say that uh, nonfiction is the kind of fiction you can d defend in court, and <laughs> fiction is the kind of nonfiction you can't defend in court. Uh, <laughs> but... But that's, it's really, but it's still the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can go back and forth, and I, I couldn't get my stuff published. That's why my fiction was, my fiction couldn't get published. I could get my nonfiction published, so I ended up with a bunch of nonfiction books before I could publish a novel. But it's only just an artifact of, of that, but I'm not going back, mm -hmm. I don't think. But never seen that. <laughs> but it's fascinating how that, that actually, with that here we have two journalists who've seen uh, who are kind of struggling with the same questions in mm -hmm. very different settings. Yeah. So, thank you both for sharing your time with us and discussing and uh, giving us a night of like fascinating literature and fascinating discussion. And thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh, the Ivy has books. If anyone else would like to get one. So. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.